The business of culture, the culture of business, policy, media, markets, philanthropy, much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. If I see instances of, of human suffering or places where people are marginalized and there's any ability for me to step in and make that situation better, that I can do that. Not as a savior, like not, I'm not trying to save people. Um, but I do feel like with my background, which is really unique, that I have a prime opportunity to use my voice and help other people, more importantly, um, be able to access their voices to make changes in the world for the better. How illness, disability, and a near-death experience led one Virginia woman to dedicate her life to serving the poor, the abused, and the under-advocated. Please stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. A shout out to our broadcast partners, WVTF Virginia Public Radio across the Commonwealth, WERA in Northern Virginia and much of Washington, D.C., WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina, and KPPQ out in Ventura, California. Holler if you too would like full disclosure on your air. Joining me in well past downtown Richmond in Fulton, Virginia, is Brienne Armbrust. She is an activist everything as the executive director of the Neighborhood Resource Center. It's a non-for-profit educational, cultural, nutrition center in Richmond, Virginia, that wants to build relationships, share resources, and develop skills to enhance lives. Everything from addressing hunger to trauma to education. She's a union activist. She has survived uh, strokes and various traumas and has found a calling in doing all of these things, and I didn't even do it justice. How are you? I'm good. How about you? Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us. Look, I met you on Twitter, where you cover all things unionization, all things Richmond activism. We are coming out of this pandemic, hopefully, where there was that reckoning in 2020, the monuments came down, but much, much, much more reckoning to do. You see a workforce, as you know, that's reluctant to go back on the old terms. You see uh, younger workers, especially, that want quality wages, uh, living wages, standard of living. They want meaning in their work. It seems like a, a vital kind of fork in the road. And on top of that, you saved this place from bankruptcy in 2020. Yes, it's definitely been a really intense, I, th I would say, last few years. But I've had a long lifetime just in a short period of time. I haven't been on the earth that long. But <laughs> it definitely feels like particularly the last three years, I think for all of us around the world, has been some of the longest that we've ever faced. Take me back to your journey. Where did you grow up? Where did you start out? What did you set out to do when you were in, what, say, a little girl or in high school? I, I started out in the city of Richmond, actually, for the first few years of my life. And then we moved out to a rural area about 20 minutes outside of Richmond, which is where I grew up. Um, I, I would say that, you know, my parents are not from Virginia. So I'm the only Virginian born in my family. So I'm the only one that says y'all. So I mm -hmm. think the the family from up north, they call me just to get me to say the word y'all. Mm -hmm. um, 
But I grew up with parents that were working class. My mother was a teacher, and they very much instilled in me values of trying to think about our neighbors and try to think about ways that we can provide support to each other and this idea of collectivism that I think has followed me throughout my entire life. Well, yeah, let's talk about collectivism. I was surprised, actually. I, I keep going back to the anecdote of when the pandemic broke and everybody realized in the fog of uh, spring of 2020 that this was serious, that the most uh, reflexive impulse was hoarding toilet paper. It wasn't kind of, okay, how can I look out for my neighbor? How can we... It, it, it didn't feel like kind of the act of war that it was, like when Pearl Harbor was bombed or I was in lower Manhattan during September 11th. We cleaved down various sides. People thought that it was, you're getting in the way of my freedom, that uh, this is a disease. Some people, just very intelligent people, said that we can't really get in the way of a plague. A plague has to run its course, no matter how much you mask or Purell. I was shocked the way we kind of, we were challenged this way, that it, it clearly exposed fault lines in American public opinion and priorities. I, I, I agree with that. I mean, I, I was very hopeful. I'm a person that tries to hold on to hope. There are so many reasons to not have hope in the world that I think the thing that we can do that is counteractive to that is to have hope. So I was hopeful that at the beginning of the pandemic, as everyone began to face situations that they'd never had to face before, people that were very comfortable in their lives were having to face things like unemployment suddenly, that that would cause people to want to kind of take a step back and understand that we have to band together. We have to try to figure out how to work with each other in order to survive. Unfortunately, I don't know the causation for it other than maybe how our society is set up where we are encouraged to be individualistic and to worry about only what goes on with ourselves and worry less about what we can do to try to make lives easier for the people around us. I think what you've articulated is exactly what I've seen happen in a lot of ways. But I will say that there are some glimmers of some things that give me a lot of hope for what's possible in the future, in particular the sheer volumes of people around the world that came together in, in forms of mutual aid to provide support to each other. We saw in Richmond the Mutual Aid Disaster Richmond organization formed and was able to support people for the last couple of years with resources. Mm. So I've really seen people step up in a way that is unprecedented, but I think those gaps that you talk about really have become chasms, the, the gaps in infrastructure where government is not providing resources that they should be providing and where there aren't uh, accesses to things that people need for their most basic survival, like housing and food. We've had to figure out a way to step up and do that. And there's just something wrong about that. That a not-for-profit that was kind of fighting for its life also and fighting for solvency and clawing for resources has to provide essential resources in the, in, you know, as people have said, the richest country on the planet. Right. And not just us. I mean, I think, you know, nonprofits around the country struggled to be able to do that because we we're already stepping into gaps. And then you think about people that were trying to figure out how they could take the resources that they have. You mentioned toilet paper hoarding. I mean, that was something for people that don't have transportation. You can't physically get to the store very easily to get those things and then to show up and someone had filled their SUV with all of that, and you can't get it. Uh, we saw neighbors here that were providing those resources to their neighbors because they weren't available in the normal means that we would be able to access it. So I think there's this expectation that there's huge holes in, in our society that are just going to get filled by someone, and we don't know who that someone is, but we just expect that it's just going to happen. And I, I think that that's the thing that really troubles me for you know, the future of the United States, but, you know, even globally, what, what that actually looks like. We are a society in the United States that 
doesn't seem to understand the concept of being your brother's keeper or, you know, looking out for your fellow person, that, that there, there is something that binds us together, even if we're very different, and trying to find the ways that we can make human suffering or uh, less. And I think we, we should be doing that. I'm thinking back to high school history, my very influential professor, Dr. Fass, talking about the leveling tendencies of the Great Depression, that if there was a silver lining out of it is that it, there were people who got their clocks cleaned in the stock market crash, there were people in bread lines, there were middle class families that were selling their cars and moving out of state, just kind of gigging for jobs. Uh, people remember hunger. There was a, There's this PTSD generally among grandparents and great grandparents and people telling you stories of never even throwing away the, the tiniest whittle of soap, you know, clumping it all together or tin foil. Um, and I was surprised both in the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009 that I covered and in this pandemic that that didn't level everybody, that that didn't kind of reset the starting line. I think a big part of it is that the Federal Reserve in both cases brought interest rates to zero and people who held property and stocks and capital assets um, did really well coming out of it. Right. Yeah. I think the I definitely have family. I mean, my grandparents, they went through and experienced the Great Depression and, and I saw the behaviors that you mentioned with them of really hoarding not essential resources, but things like socks, undergarments, things that were not readily available, sometimes food. Um, you would see some of that. And I expected with what happened with so many people losing their jobs, especially in 2020, uh, middle class families sud suddenly realizing that they were 300 or $600 away from financial disaster, that that would result in some leveling out, some better understanding of what other people go through. I think what we've seen instead is people have weaponized other individual situations, and we're seeing that around the country in record numbers. And I think also what happened related to employment and unionization coming out of you know the Great Depression and the 50s and, and all of that was you had so many years of unionization around the United States that people had pensions, they had retirements. Mm. They had built all these things up. And then you get into the 1980s and people were fairly comfortable. They had had this many years of, you know, 30 or 40 years of working in a job maybe or having family members that were working in jobs that provided health insurance, that provided pensions, that provided things, that provided living wage employment. As we know, the economy and, and wages haven't kept up. And so what I think we're dealing with is the back end of the, you know, that boom of everyone being comfortable the 90s, the 2000s, people using losing their pensions. So you can't really look around anymore like you could in the 1950s and, and know that your neighbors have jobs with retirement. It, it's less common to find individuals that have that stabilization in their household of knowing that at least the job is going to provide what they need to provide for the family long term. And so I think that's one of the things that we're seeing around the country right now. There's a, a gap of individuals I kind of call it a gap, but there's a group of individuals that are in their 20s, their late 20s to 40s that don't have a lot of those resources. They don't have retirement. They may not have access to health insurance. We know in this community, many 30, 40, 50-year-olds that are living with their 80-year-old parents. And what we've seen happen with COVID is as that senior family member dies, if they don't have a will or an advanced directive, a power of attorney, all of those legal documents in place because they don't have access to a lawyer and they don't have access to, uh, access to resources to do that, is we've, we've seen people displaced, losing family homes, not having access to stability that they need. And, and so I think what we've done is left out huge portions of the population over the last 20, 30, 40 years. 
Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are at the Neighborhood Resource Center in the east end of Richmond, Virginia. We call it Fulton at the Neighborhood Resource Center, which is a non-for-profit educational, cultural, nutrition center here. Uh, Executive director is Brian Armbrust. Uh, You just gave me a tour of the kitchen. And uh, hunger is front and center again, because when you see food prices soar in inflation, obviously it disproportionately hits people whose disposable income overwhelmingly goes just to keeping mouths fed. Yes, we we have run into that and we're running into it here even as a business. So right now I'm struggling to be able to source milk for Neighborhood Resource Center for our food program. We're doing the best that we can with the suppliers that are available, but they're dealing with staffing problems and shortage uh, of workers. And so that's leading to us having to figure out how do we sustain our USDA food program here that requires that we provide milk with every serving. We're seeing it with produce prices and what's happened with the the border in Texas with the refusal by the governor there to allow produce to come across the border for a period of time. I think the concern that we had around food access prior to 2020 and in, in the early parts of the pandemic are only going to increase. And for a neighborhood here in Greater Fulton, we don't have a grocery store. And it can take an hour and a half to get to the closest um, Explain for store. our listeners what the default is when you don't have a grocery store. Are you going into a gas station and buying milk or Lunchables? There are very minimal options here, in particular in Greater Fulton. Um, we don't have corner stores, so it's not set up the same way like in New York or in some other cities where you might have a bodega that you can go into and purchase food. This particular neighborhood really doesn't have that. We do have gas stations. So sometimes there's options in gas stations. But what we often find that it can lead to is people going without food. So we run a food pantry program. We're the only delivery food pantry program in the city. And we deliver food on the third Friday of each month to residents that live here in the 23231 zip code so that people don't have to worry about that transportation. But we are seeing, you know, the impacts of, in this neighborhood, 50 to 60 years of divestment from the neighborhood by government systems. What did this neighborhood look like 50, 60 years ago? There was a flourishing community of African-American or black families that lived in an area called Historic Fulton or Fulton Bottom, which is down the hill from Fulton Hill, where we are right now. They had a, a flood. There were actually two floods, but one that ended or happened in the 1970s that led to mass displacement. Homes were torn down and people were moved out of the neighborhood. But that area in the neighborhood had a grocery store and other businesses. Here on Fulton Hill, there was a bank, there was a post office, there was a school. We're in the building that used to be the post office, but those things were closed over decades. And so what we've seen is resources that exist in this neighborhood get pulled out over uh, the last, I would say, 40 or 50 years, leaving residents with nothing. We talk on the show about trauma a lot, and I love to quote this, not a surf song, uh, do it again. They say, maybe this weight is a gift, like I had to learn what I could lift. In rapid succession, you survived both domestic violence and you survived brain tumors. Tell me about that experience, kind of your reinception, if you will. You know, I would say that I had already already been a resilient person. I think I was that way, very serious as a child, like very much caring about what happened to my fellow person, whoever was around me, trying to look out for the person that, that was being picked on on the play yard. That was kind of the thing that I did. But I think what I understood is there was a little bit of fearlessness that came out of the, the situation, both with domestic violence that I encountered, as well as surviving two brain surgeries in a matter of a few years and uh, suffering a really massive stroke where I actually passed away um, in that process. I, I always have to ask what you saw. 
<laughs> on that side. Um, it, it's I just read the book after. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Um, my grandfather came to me when I was in the ambulance. So I was on the gurney and I felt myself dying. I knew that I was dying. And right before the, they had to stop, it was a volunteer rescue squad that wasn't prepared for what they encountered when they found me at home. They had to pick up a firefighter and I could hear everything and see everything. I was very aware of what was going around, um, going on around me. And in the moment right before he took the um, epinephrine that they used to shoot, I guess, into my heart to bring me back, my grandfather appeared on the stretcher and he was sitting and he said, not now. Your grandfather who had passed. My grandfather who had passed away. So it, it sounds like this is a made up thing. No, it's pretty universal. Really in that moment, whether it's that I just drew on the strength that I needed to fight through. And he, he was the person I always looked to as my, you know, my hero or my resource. So he just appeared to me and was like, not now. And it, I could feel like him patting me on my leg saying, not now. And they shot me in the heart with the injection that they did. And I came right back. But I, I suffered an anoxic brain injury from lack of oxygen to the brain. That was 2010. You continued with your job in various uh, office roles. And um, what were you doing up until about 2019? Um, so I would say prior to 2019, I've worked for labor unions. Mm -hmm. I was at the time in 2010, I was working for a telecommunications company where I was a union vice president with a union. That was my first union. And the day that I had my hemorrhagic stroke was actually the day that our center closed. So I was laid off as of that day. It all happened on the same day. So I was at home and I knew that this was the last day that I would work. It was a Saturday. So we actually weren't working on that day, but it was my last day of employment when I suffered that stroke. Went on to work for a labor union, United Food and Commercial Workers, and did that for six years and then worked with a statewide public sector union here in Virginia. So decided that I had already faced death at that point, and I had an idea of what was really important for me for my life going forward, and that was at that time to fight for workers' rights. And you said you started using Western and Eastern medicine, including yoga, and you started grad school three weeks after that first stroke and graduated 14 months after that. Even so, you experienced two more events since then. So this, is, this has kind of been a kind of a staccato of challenge in the decade that you've been finding your calling. Yes. You know, in 2010, I became disabled for the first time in my life. I, I had to deal with disabilities. I had, and I still have mild right side paralysis, but that, at that time, I couldn't even touch the top of my head. I was using a cane to walk, so I went to grad school. I couldn't drive. My parents had to drive me. I wasn't allowed to drive yet. I used a cane for two years. I couldn't touch the top of my head. Now, as I'm demonstrating to you, I can touch the top of my head. Yeah. Um, the two subsequent ischemic attacks that I dealt with affected the other side of my body. So I have bilateral issues. I can't always tell that the right side of my body is connected. It's a really interesting thing. I went on to become a yoga teacher. I was already doing yoga before I'd had my, my first stroke and went on to become a yoga teacher. And I primarily teach individuals with chronic illnesses and disabilities because I feel like we get left out a lot. And so those are the populations that I work with the most. Um, and I also am a death doula. So I work with people and their families as family members are in hospice to help people transition. So Brian, in your rehabilitation there, in those moments kind of in, in the bed, on bed rest and everything, you could fall into a deep depression. You found a deeper meaning. You said there was kind of a fearlessness and that you already faced death. Yeah. I, I think... I made the decision that um, I felt like my my life's mission was to be a servant to other people. So I felt like it was my role to step into the gap 
And that's really, I had always felt that way as a kid, but I decided very strongly that if I see instances of, of human suffering or places where people are marginalized and there's any ability for me to step in and make that situation better, that I can do that. Not as a savior, like not, I'm not trying to save people, but I do feel like with my background, which is really unique, that I have a prime opportunity to use my voice and help other people, more importantly, um, be able to access their voices to make changes in the world for the better. And what were you, I mean, was there, was there a voice kind of a top one shoulder saying, but how am I going to make a living? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there always has been. I, I went to both undergrad and grad school um, as a person that didn't actually want to go to college, but because I felt like I needed to have degrees in order to find employment, I never expected, I wanted to be a teacher. I never expected to end up with the career path that I've had, but I knew that there were things going on in the world that I felt weren't right and I needed to do something about it. My dad has has compared me to Don Quixote, not in the bad way, um, like not in the way most people think that Don Quixote was silly. And tilting at windmills. He was tilting at windmills, and the windmills were imaginary and, and all of that. But my dad likens it to the fact that, like, you know, I feel very strongly that we can change some things. And I, I take on challenges that a lot of people wouldn't take on because I've overcome so much. Brian, hmm. tell me about... Um the, uh, the the mission and the kind of the struggle. Let's say 2019, and then everything that happened after this kind of rapid fire calamity. You found you fit, you know you 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 decided to leave the day job and the office grind or the nine to five thing in 2019, and the pandemic hits us in 2020. Right. Yeah, I, I thought I was making a quality of life decision, so I left a a employment situation that had a pension and a 401k and a, a much larger salary than I currently make to try to have a better quality of life, to work closer to home, to um, be able to merge the work that I had been doing in my personal life as a community organizer, to do that as part of my professional work. Didn't know what I was walking into organizationally here. And three months later, then we're dealing with the pandemic. So um, couldn't have anticipated any of what we ran across, but I feel like there was a reason why I was put here and prepared to be here in this place. And all the work that I have done in my personal and professional life up to 2020 put me here to be able to do what I'm doing. Full disclosure, stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fullderadio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to friends and family. We are on WERA in Arlington and much of D.C. Of course, we're on Virginia Public Radio, Radio IQ, WVTF. Across the Great Commonwealth, you can hear us down in North Carolina, in Asheville, on WPVM, and out west in Ventura, California, on KPPQLP. Holler if you, too, would like us on your air. If you are just joining us, my guest is Brienne Armbrust. She is the executive director of the Neighborhood Resource Center on the far east end of Richmond, Virginia. It's a not-for-profit educational, cultural, and nutrition center that has been kind of all things necessary for people in a time of pandemic and a time of rampant hunger right now with inflation. She's been a union activist. She's a yogi. She's a death doula. She's a bit of like an inspector gadget for activism. And this is why I wanted to have you on the show. I am really interested about the great resignation. I'm sure you follow it a lot. We follow each other on Twitter. And everybody should understand that I found an interesting person on Twitter who's kind of a curator of Richmond and regional and national activism. And I said, I direct message and said, I really would like to meet you and interview you. And it's fascinating when you kind of use that as a tip of the iceberg thing. And then next thing you know, you're getting a tour of a great 
neighborhood resource center and a pantry and a recording studio and you're on the far east end and learning about a person and a person's near-death experience. So I know a lot of people are knocking Twitter right now, but it certainly has its merits. What about this great resignation? You found your kind of cry uncle moment in 2019, but I was surprised when unemployment, extraordinary unemployment benefits and fiscal stimulus and everything had kind of run out at the end of 2020 or 2021, that people were still reluctant to go back to the old grind. I'm not shocked by it. Um, having spent 20 plus years working with uh, workers, union members, having to sit in grievances, negotiate contracts, um, push employers to do the right thing, push employers to pay people because I've dealt with a lot of wage theft cases. I, I wasn't surprised that, that there was a tipping point. People had gone through tremendous emotional and physical suffering, I think, in 2020 in lots of different ways. Um, unemployment, at least here in Virginia, wasn't handled particularly well. So there were a lot of people that that didn't receive their unemployment payments, sometimes for months or years, didn't receive what they expected to receive. So I wasn't shocked to see that people had finally thrown their hands up and given up. I mean, the reason why I left the last employment situation that I had before this one was I had a stress-related um, ischemic attack, like a stroke, in 2018, and it caused significant deficits for me. And it was related to working conditions. And I decided I'm not going to do this anymore. So I have great respect for lots of people that have made the decision to choose themselves. Um, I think wages have not kept up. And I think that's something that employers, we deal with this at, at Neighborhood Resource Center too. We pledge to pay a living wage and that, that living wage continues to change based on the cost of everything in the world. So I think unless employers are willing to do what they can to try to improve working conditions and ensure that people are able to have input in what goes on in the workplace. I think we're going to continue to see people that are less committed to employers because often employers are not committed to their workers. I was told in the first 100 days of the Obama administration in 2009 that there was this fear that if you kept up with bailouts, there was this concern that Citigroup was going to fail and would have to be bailed out. And AIG was coming back to the trough for more things. In addition to the, what, seven, eight hundred billion dollar bailout from the prior autumn, that if there was going to be one thing that was going to send people into the streets with pitchforks, it would be this. But And yet it didn't. And yet I, I was surprised that the minimum wage didn't hike up after that, that the chasm only widened between capital and labor. I think in that regard, I'm, I'm also not surprised because I've been close to workers for as long as I have. I've been a worker. I've been a union member. I think people don't necessarily recognize how much effort and energy it takes to be able to stand up and fight back when there are things that happen that are wrong. Mm. So when you're in the workplace, if you are just barely able to make ends meet, you don't have the emotional and mental resources and capacity that's necessary to take those risks to be able to stand up. For workers to go on strike, and I've supported workers on strike, I've been on strike myself, that's a tremendous sacrifice to not have a society starting to get better, but to not have a society that understands why you're striking. Because what tends to happen, back to that individualist piece, is that people say, well, I don't have a pension. Why should you have one? Instead of thinking, we all should have a pension. How do I get one? And I think that's part of the, the piece that I would, would take away from that. I think people were really frustrated with bailouts and with other things that have happened with the economy. But if you're under-resourced, the people that are most under-resourced in society or just trying to figure out how to keep a roof over their head. They're making really difficult decisions. They're the ones that are most impacted, but are, are 
with the trauma that they deal with are probably less resourced to be able to do something about it. It's the rest of us, the people that are uh, considered to be middle class or otherwise, it, it takes some responsibility for other individuals to stand up and say, this isn't right, for employers to decide that they need to do right by their workers. I hope that that is something that comes out of all of this, especially with the wonderful successes that I believe are wonderful of uh, workers unionizing at Starbucks and at Amazon and some of these major corporations. I hope that they're starting to see that if they just do the right thing, there won't be some of this animus and some of the pushback that's happening. It's all about doing the right thing by people. Well, Brian, what what of the uh, how can people afford to just opt out? Is what I want to know. How do you how do you balance the books? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's ways to do it. We certainly have struggled with that at Neighborhood Resource Center. When I was hired here, we were in dire financial straits. Um, we didn't have health insurance for any staff, including myself. I was on Cobra when I started here. It required me to do tremendous levels of fundraising because we are a nonprofit to be able to fundraise enough money. But I was very clear with our funders, our donors that what we were raising money for was to take care of the workers that are here because it creates growth and equity for us to have people work here that cannot not afford to live. For us to be placing people in better employment, which we do with our Financial Opportunity Center that qualifies them for health insurance, but then we have staff here that aren't able to receive health insurance. Mm. That's hypocritical. And so it's, it's taking me speaking out to our funders who have been wonderful, <clears throat> but also to other nonprofit executive directors and business owners about the same thing. There's a lot of pushback for that when I have those conversations, but it's necessary. And if you can't afford to do the right thing and what you're doing is creating harm, I think you have to take a step back and decide if you should be doing what you're doing at all. If you can't afford to run a business that takes care of your employees at the most basic level, maybe that business shouldn't be in existence in the same way that it is. Which brings us to a Starbucks and an Amazon. Uh, in a very mercenary way, a lot of these things just come down to an arbitrage. Who are you... How would I say? I, I don't want to say exploiting. It's too strong. But in the Grubhub business, you know, I've discussed this quite a bit, or DoorDash, there is a gig worker that's getting paid or the restaurant is. Why wouldn't the restaurant have done this soup to nuts, like done delivery on their own? It's just not possible for them to get enough drivers. But someone is being short shrifted in that process. And uh, there's always kind of a pushback. There's a tug of war that the restaurant wants more of the the bill at the very end. The driver wants more. The person who's getting the food delivered to them sees the sticker shock of 35% on top of you know, a $20 dinner bill or something like that. Someone in the midst of all of those constituents is the one that's kind of getting, I don't want to say screwed, but short-shrifted. Right. I, I think it depends on how we look at it. I think that, again, going back to the idea of collective care, I mean, we have to decide, even if it's city by city, neighborhood by neighborhood. We have to decide that there's a better way and to work that forward. There are places you, you hear, it's very rare, but there are restaurants where the tip is included um, in, in the pay and a living wage is included. Um, there are places where those things are part of what you pay for and what you expect to pay when you go to a restaurant, that that is part of that. I think for the restaurant industry, particularly with what we saw in Richmond, there were so many small restaurants that existed before the pandemic. There were so many far more than the population could actually support. It was a thing to create small businesses. And the business owners weren't able to make ends meet for themselves either for their own household in most instances. But I think that's part of what we, we have to sort through as a society. That's part of a much larger conversation. Now, when you talk about corporations, corporations 
and you look at CEO pay and the way that those things work, the resources are there. They just have to decide that that's going to be reallocated to the workers. So as opposed to share buybacks or dividends to kind of accept a smaller margin and then say that I'm drawing a line in the sand and we're not going to pay workers the minimum wage or even three bucks above the minimum wage. Right, right. And sometimes it also takes legislative action. You know, there was an opportunity to include tipped workers, restaurant workers, and minimum wage increases in Virginia. There's been options for that all over the country. They've been excluded. Same for farm workers. So there are opportunities legislatively to say this is what it needs to be. Um, We do progressive minimum wage increases. That's what's happening now in Virginia. But there are opportunities to have things move faster. I think that the largest voices sometimes in the room are big businesses, are large corporations, and it makes it really hard for workers, for smaller organizations to be able to have a voice because they're not represented in the rooms with the decision makers that are making these decisions. And what of all this that we've heard about unions clout declining so much unrelentingly over 50 years? I mean, I think that's all deliberate. If you think about the way that, that society is structured, um, Often individuals that are in positions of power do not like to have that power challenged in any way. And I'm not referring to anything other than dialogue or pushback or them maybe not getting reelected. I think that if you look at unionization, and again, we, we spoke earlier about the 1980s, people got comfortable in the 1980s. A lot of the labor unions got rid of their international education departments that would educate members about their rights and why unions were important. That happened in the late 80s and early 90s. So you see a shift away from the workers that work in those workplaces. You see um, employers create tiers in workplaces. So a lot of unionized contracts now have tiers where workers hired before a certain date have better benefits than workers after another date because union power declined. Mm. Um, There was an idea, I think, sometimes with unions that you should avoid a strike if at all possible, which is always important. And you always should do that. Avoid it if you can, because there's a cost to workers, but there not being able to strike, not being able to have anything to hold the employer to task, then means that the worker power is diminished. So if you know that the workers are not prepared to go on strike, if you know that they're not able to do that, or if a contract prohibits striking, there really is nothing to hold that employer to have to come to the table and negotiate in good terms. I think the denigration of the National Labor Relations Board that happened during the Bush administration, during his term, both of their terms, and the Reagan administration with the PATCO strike, I think led to a lot of this decline. It all happened in the same time frame, where you see less and less workers going to places that have unions, less jobs available that are unionized. I hope that we're coming around on that trend as we're starting to see new industries organized. But having all that happen at the same time as free trade agreements started to send work overseas... It all makes sense that from the 80s going forward that you're going to have this decline. And I think unions, if employers are doing the right thing, often workers don't want to unionize a union. I've been a union organizer. So if employers do the right thing. Where Howard Schultz at Starbucks would argue that the CEO came back and said, we're going to prioritize the baristas. We're going to suspend stock buybacks for the time being. But there are things that we can do like we have had done without unionization. I sent people to college. I've provided a living wage and everything. And it seems to be that the the momentum is on the still on the side of unionization. I, I think that sometimes it's a day late and a dollar short to use that phrase. I think that employers have the ability, especially when they're mega corporations, to do the right thing on the front end, hmm. anticipating that if they provide those things, there isn't a need for unionization. When employers decide not to do that, to come back after workers are starting to organize and to offer that, that just seems like you're trying to make the unionization efforts go away. 
a really good example in the United States where a corporation made a deliberate decision when they came here to do the right thing and to recognize a union from the front end was Singular Wireless, which is a now AT and T Wireless that yeah. a few people may remember. Um, but they they came into the United States and they went to the Communication Workers of America International Union and said, "We want a union here for our workers because they were an international company. They were they came from overseas where union density is much greater." And so CWA, including myself, Communications Workers of America. Yes, they sent organizers into to all of the stores to sign people up on authorization cards without management union busting. If Starbucks wanted to do the right thing, they wouldn't be doing the things that it But is that I mean that's because they brought a taste of European labor yes. ethic with them. Yes. But we have models of that in the United States. So I think, you know, it workers shouldn't be subject to some of the things that like we saw with Starbucks or with Amazon that the National Labor Relations Board has taken them to task on. Brian Armbrust, in the few minutes I have left with you, I have to ask you about this fabled non-college educated disaffected American, that there used to be a constituency, that you used to have labor unions, that you used to have activists in the Democratic Party fighting and a fair wage and everything. But a lot made of, if you look at the electoral college, especially non-college educated whites in Michigan and Pennsylvania and the Wisconsin and the Rust Belt. And you look at all these states that opted out of the Affordable Care Act or opted out of extraordinary unemployment benefits. What I don't understand is for people who immediately have a vested interest, poorer people, whatever your skin color in the the check and the benefits and you know you have states with a greater incidence of diabetes or opioid addiction that you can put a kind of partisanship ahead of that and say I don't need that I don't understand the glue that binds that I think there that goes back to individualism I think there's this idea that I have mine it's up to you to go and get yours which is a little bit tied into the kind of old school concept of the American dream that if you just work hard you're going to get certain things I think what a lot of people have had happen over the last few decades is the wool has been pulled over their eyes to believe that there is a party that has their best interest at heart. You know, I'm not a person that aligns either with the Democratic or the Republican Party. I really don't have a political party. I'll just say that the Democratic Party, who has professed some values, has not necessarily always lived up to those either. And in unions, it isn't about political parties because unions themselves cannot endorse political candidates. They have to use political action committees in order to be able to do that. I do think with people that are in union environments, if they've been there for decades in some of the places that you mentioned, they know what they know to be real. And what they know is what's going on in their workplace and sometimes know very little about what's happening elsewhere. So their goal is to keep what they have. And that's, again, playing into where you see employers create tiers, where you see society pit people against each other where we fall into that, we get duped by people in positions of power to believe that we need to be enemies with each other when all of us are affected in the same way. Particularly individuals that are lower income, whites that live in rural areas are very impacted by a lot of these policies, like you mentioned, not expanding the Affordable Care Act. Um, they could do well for, um, for rent relief and some of the other assistance that's been available. But they believe that those things are against their interest. They believe narratives that they see that are really not true. And if your frame of reference is only what exists in your community and you don't challenge yourself to get out of what is comfortable, which very few people do because there's risks associated with that, emotional, mental risks, you might, you might actually discover things about yourself that are painful. Mm. I think it's important for us to push ourselves to those boundaries, to put ourselves in some uncomfortable circumstances with people that are different than us so that we can have a better understanding of other people's situations 
so that we can be the best advocates that we can, both for them, but also for ourselves. Brian Armbrust, Executive Director of the Neighborhood Resource Center on the far east end of Richmond, Virginia. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on. Just that Twitter direct message and it led to all of this. I'm grateful and I hope you come on again. Thank you. Full disclosure, please stay with us. If you are just joining us, we're talking about advocacy in the era of COVID, people who've been left behind, people who found a second mission in the Great Reset and Great Resignation. Uh, My guest now is Pauletra James. She is a graduate of George Washington University. She graduated in 2019, and she's one of the co-founders of Sistas in Prison Reform, where she's trying to remove the mentality, in her words, of lock them up and throw away the key. Her husband has been in prison on a weapons charge since 2000, on a 38-year sentence, and she's arguing for a second chance here, that there's you're throwing away the lock and the key and a lot of opportunity for society. How are you? I am doing fine tonight. How are you? All right. We are talking about uh, a labor force right now that we were talking earlier with Brian Armbruster. A lot of people just are not showing back up to work. Immigration has been curtailed as it was during the Trump administration. Employers left and right are looking for people who are eager to work. And one of the most overlooked constituencies is the imprisoned workforce. What can you tell me? Um, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. You know, we have a lot of individuals who are currently serving excessive, ridiculous, harsh sentences that, you know, have worked hard and done everything that they can do to rehabilitate themselves and are looking for a second chance. And so, you know, if they were out and here in society, this would be a great opportunity for these workforces that are thereby lacking their workforce to have willing, able bodies that would want to come to work. Now, you take photos of your husband where you are on the inside where he's serving and you post them, I see, on your Twitter account. But what has transpired now in the, it's almost in a quarter century since he's been on the inside? Oh my gosh, Um, so much (laughs) has changed. Um, You know, we are not able to take pictures at the present moment because of COVID. And of course, due to COVID, things were shut down. So I am just recently able to actually start visiting with him again. I had a visit probably a couple weeks ago, which was our first face-to-face since uh, COVID, really. Yep. I mean, providing a second chance, what kind of continuing education has your husband had on the inside or What has he learned to be able to take on the outside? So many things have happened with mobile and the internet. I don't need to talk to you about coding and the smartphone. I can think about how different 2000 was to the present. Oh, yes. He will definitely have to adjust to the new technology once he comes home. You know, they did have cell phones when he went in, but he um, is probably more familiar with the flip phones and not necessarily the iPhones and the newer gadget that you can use where you have your email and you have internet and so much accessibility on it. But, you know, um, since he's been there, because when he went in, he did not have his high school diploma. So he did get his GED while he was incarcerated. And he is currently taking some college courses with a university that or college that's based out of Jacksonville, Florida, to get an associate's degree in biblical studies. And his intention is You know, he wants to help young youth who are troubled because, of course, he was troubled when he went in. 
but he was afraid to seek the help because, you know, most men do not want to talk about mental health or, you know, even acknowledge that they have mental health issues. And so he wants to, you know, reduce that stigma and allow young youth to be able to have a place and individuals that they can talk to if they are struggling with depression or other mental health issues or even marital abuse, because that was another issue that he um, had encountered as well. Mm. Pauletra, tell me about the kinds of employers who you've encountered who have opened up their eyes to this potential workforce, transitional people, decarcerated. What, what, what is the terminology exactly? So we like to call it decarceration or restorative justice. And I haven't really had much encounter with companies. Um, I have been trying to reach out to the workforce unemployment office to see if they would be willing to host a job fair because here in Virginia, we have a new bill that's going to go into effect July 1st. It's called the Earned Sentence Credit Bill, which will be releasing a lot of individuals because they were able to gain additional good time on their sentence that they have served. So they'll be coming home early. And so with the release of that many individuals, we want to make sure that they have resources to include jobs and housing and things of that nature that they would need to be successful here on the outside. So I've been trying to reach out to the unemployment office to see if they'd be willing to host various job fairs in various areas that can help assist those individuals coming home to get a job. As you know, some employers do not hire individuals who have a felony record, but I honestly don't think that individuals coming home from prison who have served their time and done their due diligence in the prisons should be, you know, restricted from being able to get a job to be able to provide for their families. How old was he when he was busted on the weapons charge? So he was 27. And how old is he now? He is 49 now. He will be turning 50 this year. And is there any evidence that he has been, I guess, uh, incorrigible on the inside or not open to change. I mean, when you go back to the parole meetings or try to make a petition for early or compassionate release, what what are kind of the answers that you get? So we did do a pardon packing, and unfortunately, he was denied for that. But you know, as far as has he done anything, you know, on the inside that would cause him not to be eligible? No. He has been infraction-free, meaning he's had no charges in the past 16, 17 years. He has also worked up a good rapport with his employer, who is the assistant warden in the administrative office where he works at during the day. So he has been classified a security level one. But in Virginia, unfortunately, if you have more than 12 years remaining on your sentence, you cannot be moved to a security level one camp, but he has since qualified for that this year and will be hopefully transitioning to a level one security camp. So what is that, a type of facility where they're much more open with your visiting or uh, the restrictions on, on collect calls and everything else? It's a lesser restricted facility where they'll be able to actually do work outside of the fencing. And it's also, you know, not as heavily um, staffed with um, correctional officers. It's kind of like a work camp. Talk to me, Pauletta, if you will, about the cost of uh, incarceration, the cost borne by society overall. I know these are numbers that Sisters in Prison Reform have broached. Oh, it is so expensive for what we as taxpayers have to pay. And I don't know exact numbers, unfortunately, but 
I believe the last statistic or the last data that I've seen, we're paying somewhere around $30,000 per day for an individual to be incarcerated. If you were to take that times the number of individuals that are incarcerated, which we are probably about 30,000, that's a lot of money that, you know, doesn't need to be spent for that. Instead, that's money that can be spent to help, you know, provide resources and programs that will decrease incarceration and, you know, provide for mental health facilities or drug facilities that can help keep people out of prison. And we're talking about Jerry James, and you have a move-on campaign for him as well. He said he has served his time more than most who have committed the same crime. Allow him a second chance to be an asset to society. Uh, You wrote this back when you said your husband committed a crime 19 years ago. He's not the man he was then. He just wants a second chance to be a husband and father. He has served his time and paid his debt to society. He is not eligible for parole, but we are hoping to get a pardon for him to allow an earlier release. How can you use the crowd, advocacy over the internet, connections with a sisterhood of other mothers and daughters and sons of people who are on the inside? Well, what we do is, you know, we help provide support, but we also help to provide education because, you know, as you know, unless you are really affected by the prison system, you really don't understand the dynamics of it or the real cost that it is to the families because, you know, you have a lot of individuals who have been incarcerated for so long, a lot of their family members are passed on. And so they have no one on the outside. And so we try to hope to provide, you know, that additional support to let them know that they are not forgotten, to let them know that, you know, there are people who care and want to fight to give them that second chance that they have earned and worked hard for and that, you know, they're not just thrown away. And so we try and change the mindset of our lawmakers and legislators by, you know, sharing stories of those individuals who have been doing amazing things, taking all the programs and even took it upon themselves to, you know, get college degrees or go to college or get their GEDs that, you know, these people are looking to to come back out to society. They are working for a second chance to be able to just live life and enjoy life on the outside. In closing, Pauletra, what is it going to look like if you got your wish and there was a pardon granted to your husband? Or even, you know, in transition, he would get a minimum, you know, security one level release en route to being uh, reunited with you in his 50s. What would kind of the learning curve look like? I mean, I'm thinking about obviously reference points. Everybody must bring up Shawshank Redemption to you and what it was like on the outside and the alienation. But the on the onboarding must be brutally difficult. So for me, what it would look like is, you know, and him and I've had a conversation that, you know, he definitely wants to get counseling because it's traumatic when you have been separated and isolated from society and family and people for, you know, 20, 30 years. So he definitely wants to, you know, seek counseling to help him overcome any of the anxiety that he might experience. But then also, you know, secure a job and get acclimated with the new technology, be able to work and go to a nine to five, come home and have dinners, quiet nights and walks on the beaches with me. What kind of mental health attention does he get on the inside? I mean, is that is that short shrifted in the prison system? 
there is not any type of real mental resource that is provided within Department of Corrections, unfortunately. So, you know, that's why a lot of individuals who have drug addictions, you know, you put them away for 10, 12, 15 years, but that doesn't take away the addiction. You know, you can't incarcerate away addictions. Um, you can't incarcerate away mental illnesses. You know, those require special trained individuals to be able to treat them and to help them on a one-on-one level. Close us out, Pauletra. In closing, I mean, if you had a chance to kind of make a case to someone that you meet that doesn't know that this is happening, you'd know kind of in the back of your mind that the United States per capita is the most heavily incarcerated, that by and large, we invest in this over vocational training and rehabilitation more than other G7, G10 countries. What would you say to people? You know, I would say that incarceration is not the answer because if it was, we would be the safest country in the world, yet we are not. You have over 2 million individuals incarcerated and yet the crime rates continue to go up year after year. So we have got to find a better way to be able to deal with making our communities safe. And we should be investing money that is spent to build prisons instead, investing in school and education and programs so that, you know, you don't have these young men wanting to or needing to go out here and commit crimes to be able to provide for their family. You should be able to be paying more than just, you know, $7 an hour. These individuals need to be able to provide for their family, keep food on the table. And so you should be paying them a substantial amount of money that they can survive on. And then they would not have the need to go out and commit crimes or to do things illegal. So I would just simply say we need to find a better way to deal with the problems and not just build prisons and throw people in and lock away, lock them away forever. We were talking to Pauletra Jones. Her husband, Jerry James, is serving a 38-year sentence that started in 2000 for a gun charge. Um, and she's advocating uh, with Sisters in Prison Reform for an early release and rehabilitation over incarceration. Uh, thank you for joining us. And please come back on the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. Full disclosure, our producer is Claire Morgan at Notterly. This show podcasts to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. A shout out to our radio partners, Radio IQ, Virginia Public Radio, WERA in Arlington, and in much of Washington, D.C., WPVM Asheville, KPPQ out in Ventura, California. Holler if you too would like us on your air. I'm on Twitter at Robin Farzad and at Full D Radio and ditto Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, you name it. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for joining us. Back with you next week. <laughs>